served with hoorah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby. Done. Hello and welcome to this week's Bad With Money Mailbag episode. I'm Gabby Dunn. This week I am joined by our new semi-co-host Mal Blum to react and respond to your messages and emails. Hello Mal Blum. Hello everyone. Pew, 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 pew. Now, uh the listener doesn't know this, but uh it, when it, this comes out, yesterday was your birthday. Oh wow, this is in the future. Yeah, this is in the future. So yesterday we celebrated your birthday. So this is a bit of a a birthday episode for old Mal. Yeah. How did my birthday go yesterday in the past? I think it went well. Allegedly, we went whale watching. (laughs) Anything could happen. Anything could change. When it comes to whales, that is a good rule of thumb. So this is a, a bit of a birthday episode for Mal. And it's Mal's first time joining on um the mailbag so i figured this would be a good time since uh you're aging you're older you're wiser everything's How different for you. you now i assume <laughs> oh no it's funny it's whenever there's mailbag episodes of podcasts i always make you skip them and so now it's it's this is grand irony that i'm on the other side of it now now i understand yeah you hate mailbag episodes but let me tell you for this <laughs> audience this audience the mailbags do the best the mailbags do numbers Amazing. I think they're I, I all obsessed wait. with themselves. Well, you know, they say that people's audiences reflect the, uh, <gasps> their fan base reflects the person. <laughs> How dare you? Okay, let's uh, read the first uh, message that is a Facebook comment um, that says, Oh my God, I've been waiting all day to listen after work. When I saw a co-host in the title, I was like, I wonder if it's Mal. I hope it's Mal. I'm so happy. They're so funny and adorkable. Your reply. Yay. I'm so excited. Thank you. I also got a message from someone that just said, he's so handsome about you. Oh my God. Thank you so much. I'm working on it. You're working on becoming more handsome? Yeah, for sure. I think I've gotten more handsome over the years. You have. And honestly, on this podcast and audio medium, people will need to know that you are getting more handsome every day. And they'll, I guess, have to be able to hear it in your voice. Uh. Hey, what's up, Bad With Money listeners? This is Mal Blum, and I hope you're having a great evening. Uh, Open up that wine, pour yourself a glass. You deserve it, baby. That was almost too sexy. (laughs) Wow. On today's show, we're going to read an Insta DM about credit cards, an email about the sad realities of selling plasma, a pet insurance email follow-up from Shelly, emails about IRAs, disability benefits, and landlords. Then we have a voicemail from a disability personal support worker. All right, let's do this. I'm ready. Okay, this email is a follow-up from BB, who wrote to me about IRAs being a scam. So happy to hear my question on air. I agree that it seems to have worked out for me, but I too have no idea if I'm right. Would love if someone could explain it to me either way someday. And like the listener after me, I'm also very interested in how to be an ethical landlord for future show ideas. I'd love to hear two people who really believe one side or the other, but to be the moderate voice for a moment, my parents bought a tiny shack in Santa Cruz, California, so he could start a surfboard making business in 1985. Is your dad Patrick Swayze from Point Break? Anyway... 
The city found out it was a residential property and made him move to an industrial space. They kept the shack, rented it out for cheap, and 15 years later, the tenant died and they sold the shack and used the money of the sale, not rental income, to buy a vineyard house in Sutter Creek, California. All that time, they were completely nice, normal, ethical, literal mom-and-pop landlords and, again, made way more money in the equity of their home than in rent or IRA investing. They were 40 at the time of sale and today are of retirement age, and my dad's IRA, which he has to pull out from at this age, has plummeted in the last year. And this stresses him out more than I'd imagine being retired, but still having tenants providing at least some of his income in his 80s. Anyway, I'd be interested to learn if there was a generation of future landlords, like me if I'm lucky, who were once renters themselves and know how to not be problematic assholes. BB. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we have more. We have more. So BB wrote in and had a very interesting take on IRAs saying that uh, he felt like he wanted more money in cash liquidity than he wanted to have in his IRA because it allowed him to put a down payment on a home. And so he was saying that everyone suggest, everyone says, put your money in an IRA, put your money in an IRA. So, and then he was worried, uh, because he had 30K in his IRA, but he wanted to start real estate investing. And he was like, I can't access that 30K and I wish I had known. So then he even wrote in and said, I am unclear on if that was the right thing, but I just wanted to let people know that the catch-all advice of invest in your IRA only or max it out every time is not actually right for everyone. Um, and then, uh, of course, he had more questions about ethical landlording, which honestly, someone else wrote in with a similar, uh, a similar question. So let's actually hear from Tino now. Hey, Gabby, this is Tino from Ontario, Canada. I've been listening to your show for years now and appreciate your political analysis and how you delve into financial topics without ignoring the shitty capitalist framework we're living in. Also, way to make a money show entertaining. Thank you, Tino. I'm glad to hear that you're looking at delving into the ethics around rental properties and landlords. I have some thoughts. TLDR, landlords buy properties with the purpose of making money, therefore driving the cost of housing higher than it could be for renters and creating housing instability for people who tend to have less money to begin with. This also leaves less available for anyone trying to buy a home and the demand drives up their prices too. Here's where it gets personal. I live in a smaller city about an hour outside of Toronto and have been working towards buying my first home for the past couple of years. I've managed to save a 40k down payment and was on track to be able to buy a 300k home last year. That is until real estate went completely off the rails. As you likely know, things here have become grossly unaffordable, even in smaller cities and towns, and prices in my area have increased almost 30% in a year. NYC is apparently now more affordable than some of our smaller cities. A couple years ago, our government implemented new rules about who can qualify for a mortgage under claims of improving affordability. But in actuality, their policies have made it supremely easy for investors and awful for first-time homebuyers. Now they're claiming that the solution to the housing crisis is just to build more homes, which we do need, but the problem is the new builds will enter the rest of the housing market as is, with no effort to keep them affordable. They think the market will balance itself out. LOL. Basically, it's going to be more supply for investors. One example of their affordability measures. 
In 2018, a mortgage stress test was introduced that buyers have to pass in order to qualify to get a mortgage, beyond the usual mortgage qualification requirements. The test looks at whether you'd be able to afford your mortgage payments if interest rates rose higher than your current qualifying rate. Last summer, the stress test qualifying rate was 5.25%, even though actual mortgage interest rates were around 2% or even less. Have you seen this tweet about rent versus mortgage payments? Yeah, that. And I'll read the tweet at the end of this. A result of all this, predictably, is that people or companies that already owned property leveraged their equity and bought one-fourth of the listed properties in Toronto, and it's a similar picture in Ontario more broadly. Rents have also skyrocketed. Where I live, the average one-bedroom now rents for around $1,700 Canadian dollars a month. Lots of mortgage payments for entire houses are less than that. The existing housing crisis has gotten infinitely worse, and I'm infuriated that people are treating properties as investments rather than homes. I can't help thinking how much more affordable things might be if there were limits on how many properties a person slash family slash company is allowed to own. First-time buyers like myself are largely unable to land in our first homes because investors compete for the more affordable price properties and can make bigger offers because they can borrow against other properties they already own. Renovictions are very common, and lots of people have bought places as short-term rentals, even in cities that have tried to limit or ban them. There are condo buildings in Toronto whose units are basically all Airbnbs. Ugh. I realize it's never going to be possible for every person to own their home, and lots of homeowners, when faced with the affordability crisis, claim that renting for life is fine and good. Look at Europe, they say. But it's much harder here to find a long-term home to rent that gives you any stability. Case in point, a corporate landlord is trying to evict long-term tenants from a Toronto apartment building for running air conditioners during a heat wave. Yup. Renting from for-profit landlords, whether corporate or individual, can't be the only or best answer. What if existing buildings were seized by governments in order to create co-ops and subsidized housing with accessible units, since around here we really suck at building any? What other options exist that provide dignified, safe, and stable long-term homes for people who can't afford to pay huge prices? I would absolutely love to see this explored on the show. Yes, I realize this topic could be an entire podcast unto itself. Anyway, this long-winded email is a request to do an episode or more about how real estate investing, landlords, etc. hurt people who need places to live, i.e. all of us, and what can be done about it. The situation here in so-called Canada is dire for renters especially and would-be homeowners. For the first time ever in my life, I'm mentally preparing to offer my couch to anyone I know who gets stuck without a place to live because several people I know are close to needing it. I'm a renter currently, but I know I'm in a fortunate and privileged position relative to many, many people, which makes it so much worse to think about what is happening for folks with less privilege and resources than myself. Thanks for a great podcast and thank you for reading all of this, Tino. So now in response to this other person's email, Tino wrote their own email. What do you what do you think, Malblum? I think I'm understanding the format of the show is that you read one email that's like a point and then you read the other email. It's like a counterpoint. So they're kind of they're two sides of the same coin. What do I think about landlords? And about Tino's email. I thought Tino's email was really well done, really well informed, uh, had a lot of information that answered the question off the back of um, the other BB's email. Uh, So it was great that we had both of those to read. Um, And I think Tino really outlined a lot of what's wrong. You know, Toronto seems like a great example of of all of these points that people are making. Tino's email is the name of a band I started in high school with. So that's a weird (laughs) process. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Like they're both they're both talking about 
they're both talking about the same thing, but they're talking about different things, right? They're both talking about the housing market and landlords, but like they're talking about like, it sounds like Tino's talking about like sort of real estate uh, investment properties. And then uh, BB's email, I'm it, it, as far as I'm understanding it, it sounds like their dad uh, bought a, a house and then like was run out of the house. Like, and then was like, I'm stuck with this house. I guess I should just rent it out. Mm-hmm. Like, so I don't know. I don't know. Is, is, is there an ethical <clears throat> difference there? I, uh, I think Tino's email is really good at, uh, describing the, um, depressing and unsustainable and unethical aspects of, uh, rental properties. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a bubble that's going to burst, right? I mean, the that's idea the that yeah. there's entire condo buildings that are just Airbnbs. I think what BB's talking right. about is selling that property at the end of X amount of years and being able to retire off that money, which is what BB's father was able to do. Right. During that time now, I'm always interested in people who say, well, my parents were very good at, at being mm. landlords. And it's like, okay, but I would be interested to talk to the right. tenants that right. lived under BB's father. Yeah. But right. anyway, so right. So you don't really know. In this case, yes, Tino is talking about these people who are buying up entire neighborhoods, making it impossible for first time homebuyers to, to own their homes. And the tweet that they were referencing is one from Cat Mean Jean, which says, the bank says I can't afford a $950 mortgage. So I pay a month in rent instead. Right. You pay, you, it's just like sort of like a poverty tax is, uh, it's like, you know, they talk about, you know, when you make less money, you actually have to pay more money for things. And and I think like a mortgage versus rental, um, is, is part of that. It's like once you get approved for a mortgage, your mortgage payment will be less than your rent. Um, and that's our, and that's our situation. And I see this happening around Los Angeles, less so in the rural area that we bought our cabin. But, you know, you see these these evictions, mass evictions, everything is an Airbnb. You can't find affordable housing because mm-hmm. everything is so out of your price range because all the the places around it are getting built up into these condos. Right. I was driving around. Uh, I was in an Uber and I was driving around and um, the guy was talking to me about in Hollywood, like Hollywood Boulevard area, all these condo buildings going up. And he was like, who can afford to live here? Mm. And I was like, uh, people that are moving into the, the city. Like, I, I, mm. my idea is like someone who is moving into Los Angeles, whose parents are paying half of their rent mm. and they are maybe a college kid or something, or they are out on their own for the first time. But the people who, who, I mean, the largely in L.A. Latinx community, mm. Latino community that were in these areas, they're not living in those condos. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, so I, I, I saw a TikTok, uh, like I always saw the, those condos and everything as like, you know, sort of like a blight on the cities that I see them in and like a facet of gentrification. And um, I saw a TikTok where I get all my news. So I TikTok the other day of like, um, this, like, he's like this, like leftist urban planner guy. And he was talking about how, um, I forget what he called them, but something boxes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was like, this is where these are actually good because this is where people moving to the area will move into these 
box, condo boxes and then the uh, residents who like live in their houses don't get pushed out of their houses. That's but a good point. That's what he was saying. However, I can't help but think about uh, our own personal tie to this at this particular point in time. So our next door neighbor died and she has a house uh, that is a residential house that she had since the 70s. So it was my hope that 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 house would maybe go to a family. Um, you know, she bought it for like $20,000 in the 70s. Her lawyer for her estate, um, he's going to sell that house for the best price he can get. Um, the money's going to charity. And most likely, because it's it's zoned for uh, multi-residential, it, it will go to condo developers. So... For me, the rest of the block is is like residential, except for like these condos that pop up. So for me, I'm like, in that case, I don't know. I don't feel good about condos going mm-hmm. up in residential areas. I do think that it's, I don't know. But then it's like, if we had been able to take that house over, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the monthly costs for that house are like, I don't know, probably like, $2,500 at least or whatever. Like we right. can't afford, we can't afford that. So then if you rent it out for like $2,500 a month, is that ethical? Mm-hmm. I still kind of think no. Like I still yeah. kind of, I don't know because then it's like, well, whatever family is renting it out for the $2,500 a month at the end of it, they don't get anything and you get this house that you can then sell or whatever. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, yeah. I mean, it's kind of, but then in that case, it's like providing affordable housing and it's not like these mm-hmm. condos that are going to be like exorbitantly priced that nobody can afford. Yeah. If we I rent know. that house out, if we, if we had that house and we rented it out for, uh, $2,500, I assume that would be half of what the people in the individual condos are each paying for those condos. Yep. Absolutely. So um, I don't know. And also the preservation of, of that home as it is, you know? I know. I think that's yeah, that's a real bummer. Very emotional yeah. for us. Anyway, we're no, not getting no, that no. house. So it doesn't matter. Just I just know, a hypothetical thought exercise. No, I, I appreciate. No, I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, And, and that's why you're here uh, on the show. And so uh, for an abrupt tonal shift, uh, I'm going to read a, an Instagram DM, a short Instagram DM that we got that says... Hello, I've just started listening to your podcast and it's super interesting. I'm turning 25 this year and I've started my own business and I'm up to my eyeballs in debt and I can't get a credit card. I'm a credit delinquent according to the letter I received after applying and being denied one. I have no idea what to do. Really at a loss at this point. Have you heard of other people in that position? None of my friends or family seem to really know how that's possible. Anyways, I'm trying really hard to work on my poor person money mindset and she's a doozy. Thanks for what you do. Anonymous. Yes. You got to check your credit score. No, they they might not have a credit score. Like they ah, might not yes. have – if you don't have – if you've never had a credit card before, they probably don't have any credit. And so then you can't get a credit card. I mean it's like one of these – like it's like an Ouroboros, you know? Yep. Um, but you what you have to do is I believe you have to go to your bank and get like a – what do they call it? A guaranteed yes. line of credit yep. card. And yep. then you have to like build your credit and then you can get – credit cards and two, then they'll try to things, sell you credit cards which is 100 percent. well two yeah. things that can happen one is that you can open a store credit card like if you want to open like a jc penny card or something mm-hmm. that will help you build credit right. uh and th- those are uh fairly easy to get as long as you keep on top of it and only you know you can only use it at that store um that's one two pay it pay it obviously because the rates at the stores the are rates crazy. are crazy but 
Yeah. And then two, uh, you can look into if you're a student or um, there's certain types of, of uh, credit cards that they will give you that are like trial credit cards, similar to what Mal's talking about. But there's ones for like students. There's ones for like certain types of people, teachers, I think. So um, look I into think those. you can even go to your bank though and like um, – I forget how I did it. But like if you, there's like – it's like a debit card, but it's not. It's like a credit card. It's but a it's credit like guaran- card. Yeah, like if you if you go into your bank and ask them about it, like you, it's like a prepaid credit card, but it can like help you. Yeah, um, you might not just be able to like hop those. on Capital One and get a credit card. Like no. that's the difference. It's just such BS because it's like if you're in student loan debt, like that's credit. Like, I know. I'm sorry. You don't get. You can't have a. You can't have a Banana Republic credit card. But like, you can take on fifty thousand dollars of like student loan debt. Like, I'm sorry, but that's BS. Like, no, you should be able. Preach. You should be able to get if you're if you're able to take out like eighty thousand dollars in student loan. I don't know how much student loans are these days. How much does college cost? Uh, sixty thousand dollars. Right. Okay. If you're if you're judged like fine enough to <laughs> take out $60,000. Yeah, the credit card companies say, you're fine. If they say, you're fine enough to take out $60,000 of student loan debt, then like they should be like, here's a $5,000 credit card. Like, what's another 5000 I agree. It's twisted. It's really twisted. So here now we did an episode that came out today, the day we're recording about pet insurance. Um, and we have received a reply from Shelly. So let's read uh, a reply to our big pet insurance episode that came out on Wednesday. If you're interested, it was all your stories and voicemails and emails about pet insurance and pet costs and your little pets. So Aww. here, I know, super cute. So here is uh, an email that uh, was brought on through someone listening to that episode. Hi, Gabby. Longtime listener here. Thanks for all you do through Bad With Money and JBU. I love your energy, openness, and curiosity. Keep it up. I enjoyed hearing from listeners about their pet costs and insurance stories, so I figured I'd share some thoughts as well. On the cost of pet care, you mentioned that vet prices aren't that far off from human prices. This makes sense, especially for acute emergencies or diagnostic scans, because the equipment for those is often the same or very similar to human medical devices. Read expensive. And they're not not that cute. (laughs) Anytime they do a scan, they are putting pennies in the bucket of ROI on their capital equipment, an X-ray or MRI scanner. That's true. Tens of thousands of dollars and have high maintenance costs as well. Vet education is also quite expensive. They get medical degrees, but for multiple species. Don't get me started on the cost of education in this country. So I appreciate that you included the nuance of saying that you understand why procedures are so expensive, but certainly there are exploitative vets and charitable vets, just like any other segment of humanity. Always get a second opinion if you can. See, you were just talking about education in this country, Mal. Okay. I don't think they should be that expensive. All right. Well, we're going to get to it. I would like to go on the record and say, no, they should be less expensive. We're going to get to it. 
With insurance, we have to remember that on average, none of us are coming out ahead. If we did, the insurance company would go out of business because they'd be paying out more money than they take in, and that's not sustainable. That's why most pet insurance is for those acute emergency situations that are impossible to predict. And of course, they have to set maximum coverage values. I'm no insurance company apologist, just chiming in on the feeling that your listeners gave that they're getting scammed. Anytime you're putting a profit-driven company in between you and paying for your pet's care, it's always going to feel like a scam. I've had three dogs in my adult life and I haven't had insurance for any of them. I just haven't seen a plan that covers enough to be worth the cost. Instead, I do what many of your listeners suggested and set aside money for my pet's care in the future. Most of the time, that's enough and a lot of vets do have low-cost financing if you don't have any other options. But unfortunately, we do have to make decisions about their care based on money and a lot of other factors. On that topic, I'll offer some thoughts on end-of-life decisions. My 15-and-a-half-year miniature pincher, Raisin, first of all, incredible, had a lot of health issues at the end of her life in 2020. One of those was mini strokes. The vets we visited gave us diagnostic options, including MRI scans to find out if it was related to some kind of cancer. But we had to consider what we would be willing to do with the results of the diagnostic scan. What are you going to do with the information it brings? If it is cancer, what does that treatment look like? In our case, it was going to be 5K for the MRI scan and thousands more if we went down the path of treating cancer with pharmaceuticals or IV meds, which would have been really damaging to her quality of life. My husband went in thinking there wasn't any amount of money he wouldn't pay to save her. But when you drop a 5K bill for a single scan of a six-pound dog, things get real very quickly. Putting her through all that plus the cost just didn't make sense for a dog that wasn't going to live for very much longer. So we chose not to have the scan. We processed the fact that we would never know 100% what her root cause diagnosis was, but we could make her as comfortable as possible by treating symptoms and loving on her for as long as we could. She had a long, happy life and we loved her so much. But at the end of the day, we know and accept that she was a dog and just was not going to live forever. The way I thought about it, the best thing I could do for her was not to extend her suffering to temporarily delay my own from losing her. That's what I would want someone to do for me. I hope you don't have to make that decision for beans, but if you do, rest assured that although it will absolutely rip your heart out, having you there at the end and giving him a peaceful rest is the best gift you could give him after all the love and joy you two have shared together. Heart. Just so I don't leave you on a completely down note, a few months after Raisin passed, our remaining dog, Ollie, seemed so lonely, so we decided to adopt a new dog to keep him company. His name is Skippy, and we call him our silly noodle because he is rather long for a chihuahua, has curly hair, and doesn't know how to use his body very well. He has a completely different personality (laughs) from Raisin and Ollie and has already brought us so much joy in the depths of our despair over losing Raisin. Skippy will never replace Raisin, and even though we wish dogs lived longer, when they pass, it gives us new opportunities to share our love and experience through tail wags, ear scratches, and fuzzy hugs again. I've attached some pictures of them to hopefully bring you a smile. Ollie on the left, Skip's on the right. I also included a picture of our feisty Raisin pup. Thanks again for your podcast and tackling this important financial topic for your listeners. Your loyal listener, Shelly from Texas. Well, I'm sorry about Raisin. I'm sorry about Raisin, Shelly, but that was such a delightful and wonderful email and so empathetic and so compassionate. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of twists and turns. Yeah. And and thank you so much because the pet insurance episode that came out um, on Wednesday had a lot of emotional listeners writing in and had a lot of emotional voicemails. Um, and so this is a topic that clearly touched a lot of people's hearts. So thank you for your response. I'm sure we will get even more responses as pets has been a topic that has come up a lot on this show. It turns out gay people love pets. <laughs> 
Um, and a lot of people love uh, their pets. And there was someone who wrote in on the pet insurance episode about uh, how much of a privilege it is to have a pet because uh, it really helps a lot with anxiety and happiness and dopamine and just feeling unconditionally loved. So I, I would say there's conditions. Oh, depending on the pet. Yes. <laughs> Mal's had some wild dogs. OK, so here's a short email from Jennifer. Hi, Gabby. During a recent mailbag, a listener was concerned about losing their disability benefits. I immediately thought of my friend Casey. We work together for a company that supports people with developmental and intellectual disabilities. Casey recently started her own business as a rep payee to help people manage and maximize their money in Oregon. In some cases, this is helping vulnerable people escape abuse and financial exploitation. She has a passion for underserved and marginalized communities. She would be a great guest for your show to help people learn how to manage their disability benefits and general money management slash budgeting. I have included her website and email address if you are interested in learning more about her. Thanks for the awesome show. I have been commuting into the office more lately, which makes it easier to listen to episodes the day they drop. Thank you, Jennifer. And the website is PNWREPPAYEE.org. PNWREPPAYEE.org. I, I assume that stands for Pacific Northwest. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for this recommendation. Hopefully this helps people. Um, so on that same note, I'm going to listen to a voicemail from someone who called in to talk about their work as a disability support worker. So let's listen to that voicemail. Hello, Bad With Money podcast. I was listening to the mailbag episode where somebody called in from, I think it was Sweden, who was a personal assistant to a kiddo with a disability. I work for a family member that has a uh, chromosomal condition. Um, and at the time, I actually had been working as a stripper. So I was making pretty good money, but the pandemic happened and everything became kind of more uncertain. But, you know, my dad didn't know that I had been working as a stripper. So I remember he was like, oh, this could be a really good opportunity for you. You know, I think you could going to start out making like $15 an hour. I kind of do the process and sure enough, yeah, like you start out at $15.25 an hour. And now I think I'm up to 17 something. And so they make this process so convoluted to even become a personal support worker. They also lump you in with home care workers. PSWs, personal support workers, typically work with individuals with cognitive disabilities and home care workers generally work with elderly people or people with more physical disabilities. There's some overlap, of course, but um, it is kind of frustrating because, you know, some of the classes I was taking were not geared towards what I was doing. And I would have really loved to have um, learned more about, you know, how to care for a teenager specifically. That's really different than caring for, you know, a child. And it's certainly really different than caring for an elderly person. Um, I think that, I don't know, if, if you guys have any other questions about this, like I have a lot of information, um, maybe just oh, I'll leave my email Maybe I'll shoot you an email to something that is a little bit more um, organized. But yeah, I love what I do. But the thing is, it's not sustainable for me to do as my only job in Portland. And that sucks. Like, I would love to just do this, you know, but I can't. One of the things that really struck me when I was like doing these online classes with a group of these other people was that it was so many other women. And a lot of times it seems like, you know, women from these different marginalized communities. And sometimes the way that, you know, the people that were running the classes, I feel like were speaking was really <sighs> condescending. I don't know. It just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But anyway, that's just some of my experience with it. Um, anyway, I love a pod. <laughs> Bye. Okay, so 
Mal, actually, this voicemail is uh, pretty relevant to you. Yeah. So what's interesting is uh, there is what I didn't realize before becoming more like intimately acquainted with the system is that they're depending on your licensure they're they are like all the things are different jobs so i think in my mind beforehand i thought like oh well medical care in your home is like all the same but there's actually like depending on like the licensure if you're if you're actually like a licensed nurse or like an rna or if you're you know uh, a caretaker without like those sorts of credentials um like there are different tasks that you can and cannot do um and i think uh depending on the situation. Um, also, if you go through an agency or something, like I think a lot of times those people are really like underpaid um, for the amount that they take on. And I'm not surprised to learn that it's uh, similar for like uh, support. Disability uh, support workers that are taking on workers, yeah. people who are not just elderly. Right. And also because um, like if, if it's not a job that requires um, licensure, um Generally, those people are treated and paid less and treated as more uh, expendable, even though it's in some ways um, just as much, if not more, um, caretaking that has to happen, you know? Physical and emotional labor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that voicemail. Um, we have one more email and then I'm going to welcome a patron and then I will let you go into your beautiful weekend. Um, so this one is a little bit of a downer, but let's let's give it a go. Hey, Gabby, as prompted in the medical tourism episode, I wanted to share my experience years ago selling plasma. Despite working more than full time, I was perpetually on the cusp of not making rent. I had already sold everything of value except my car when I got hit unexpectedly with some legal, personal and car related expenses all around the same time. I didn't have a lot of options and I remembered seeing an ad for selling plasma. I found a national plasma chain reasonably close. They offered sign-up bonuses and the promise of making up to $400 a month for basically just sitting in a chair during your free time. The actual experience was far from what was advertised. Right off the bat, the $400 a month was a lie. It was theoretically possible to make up to $400 only in the first month, but that includes the one-time sign-up bonuses and the much higher introductory rate they pay to entice you, which gets cut in half after a few sessions. And with mandatory waiting periods between each session, you would need to sell as often as was legally allowed, which just wasn't possible. This was, of course, located in an extremely impoverished area, so there was always a long wait to register. If you got there even half an hour after they opened, you could be waiting all day and not make it in. And they had someone working there making sure that no one showed up before they opened to discourage loitering. If you got caught showing up early to wait in the parking lot, they wouldn't let you sell that day. So even if you tried to hit your legal limits for the month, you likely wouldn't be able to. I think I made maybe like $250 the first month, but $150 was more common. If you were lucky enough to register, you'd then wait in a crowded room for an hour or more to be called for intake. Then they do a brief medical screening, a physical, and a catalog of any tattoos and scars. If you had new tattoos or scars, they warned you would be disqualified for, I want to say, six months and would need to redo the much more in-depth initial screening, including a hepatitis test, before you could sell again. I remember at one point I calculated my hourly wage for selling plasma, including all the time I spent waiting to register, waiting to be screened, the actual process of extraction, and the mandated time waiting afterwards, and I think it ended up being around four or five bucks an hour. 
And that four or five bucks an hour, you don't even get all of that. You're considered a 1099 independent contractor, so you have to pay self-employment tax on it. Plus, they only paid you on a weird off-brand prepaid debit card. It wasn't even accepted at some payment terminals, and you got charged both ATM fees and an access fee by the card company to take your money out as cash or even just check your balance. It was miserable. No one who isn't desperate does this. They degrade you. They treat you with suspicion. They waste your time. They shame you to your face. I sold plasma for maybe seven months before I was able to afford to stop. Since that time, a feeling has stuck with me that I've struggled to put into words. On the walls at the plasma center, they had posters explaining how your plasma gets used, hemophilia medicine, etc. Proponents of capitalism claim it drives innovation and unleashes the creative forces that improve people's lives. But even the best products of this system, like life-saving medicines, at their core, are built on the blatant exploitation of a desperate and powerless underclass. There has to be a better way to do this. Thanks, Alex. Holy moly. You had a lot of thoughts about that one. No, it's just so informative. I, I never, you know, wow. Um, it totally makes sense. It's blowing my mind. Also, it's really, um, making, uh, a Laura Stevenson song that I like. Um, I think, I think about being in the music industry. That's my interpretation of it. But, um, there's a meta, there's a metaphor, um, about, uh, selling your blood. And it, now it's making more sense. It's making more sense to me. Yeah, Alex, thank you so much for that incredibly vulnerable email. I think you're right on the money. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. And um, I think, you know, not to, again, pun, but you're right on the money because it does, capitalism does work because of this lower class. And we talked about this Mm. a bit, me and Mal, in the episode about Roe v. Wade, where the continual creation of this lower class through forced birth is what gives you more people for these types of things. Thank you so much for writing in with that. I really appreciate it. That was exactly what I was hoping for, that kind of vulnerable response. So thank you, Alex. I have a question. Is selling your plasma, is that, is it through like a private company or is that something that's like government subsidized or like, you know? I think it's through private companies. Yeah. Yeah, I can't help but think that in that and also the other listener uh, email where they're talking about like, well, for pro you know, insurance is for a for-profit company. Like they're never going to like, you know, give you a good deal. And it's like, yeah, we shouldn't have to go through for-profit companies for health insurance yeah. or to get blood. Like, yeah, I know. Anyway, if you, also, if, what? Oh, no, I was just going to suggest maybe you would like the Laura Stevenson song, A Shine to It. Okay. Um, uh, th- uh, not, yeah, you. Well, not you, the listener. The listener. I, yeah. I already, I, I will listen to it too. I'm a listener. Um, well, you didn't donate plasma, so I, didn't. I don't know. If you have donated <laughs> plasma, please write in. Um, you don't have to be as vulnerable as Alex, but I am curious what you learned from that experience. Um, now I want to welcome our patron. Our new patron is Val. Thank you, Val, for becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn. Three final things. One, I have an AMP show called This Week in Gay every Wednesday at 8 a.m., It's live. I only do it live. So come hear me do things live. Two, I have a Scribd original out now called Stimulus Rack. You can get it for free at try.scribd.com slash done60. And the last one is we're doing another write-in episode that is similar to our pet insurance episode, which is about childcare, pregnancy costs, IVF, abortion, and surrogacy. 
You guys have left a lot of emails and a lot of voicemails. So if you left me a voicemail in the last couple of weeks and you haven't heard it on the show, it's because we're saving it for that episode. But please write in. I would love to hear more from you on these topics and also on the topics of childcare, pregnancy, IVF, abortion, and surrogacy, but also on any topic we discussed today. You can send me an email at GabbyIsBadWithMoney at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail at 844-474-4040. You can also email me a voice memo if you prefer. Join our online communities too. We're on Instagram, Discord, TikTok, Patreon, and Facebook. The Discord, as always, is popping off. Links to all of these will be listed in the episode description. Don't forget to listen to the show the day it drops so we can get on the charts and spread the word. Uh, and we have some really fun episodes coming up in different formats. So stay tuned. Thank you. Mal, do you want to say anything? Yeah, you can follow me on uh, Instagram at uh, Instagram.com slash Malblum, M-A-L-B-L-U-M. I'm uh, spotlighting my Instagram in particular this episode because uh, I need to know if I'm getting more handsome. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Done. Done.